I hate to use a school illustration when school has just let out for the summer, especially since our students would rather not think about it, and probably the teachers who have just started their summer break would rather not think about school either. But there are usually a few days each school year where the teacher knows that attendance is going to be significantly down. Maybe it's because part of the class is on a field trip. Maybe it's the day before a holiday and people are taking off early. Or maybe there's just a lot of sickness. But whatever the reason, the teacher knows that attendance is going to be down that day. And so he or she is faced with a dilemma. Do they go ahead and teach new material knowing that a good percentage of the class is now going to be behind because they're not there to learn it? Or do they go into review repeating material so that everyone stays together. I never liked the idea, and still don't, of reviewing just because some people are not there. I've always had the philosophy that you ought to teach, or in this case, preach, for those who have shown up. And so, of course, you know that in the church, we have Sundays where we know the attendance is going to be down, like today. The official start of summer, Memorial Day weekend, where so many head out for the beginning of their summer vacation, or others don't go anywhere. They stay home and attend the lake rather than the church. And I am certainly not tempted to repeat a sermon just because people are not here, but it does work out nicely for us that in Mark chapter 8, we actually find a lot of material that in some way we've already seen before. In fact, there's a There's a strong parallel between chapter 6 and verse 30 all the way through the end of chapter 7 and the material that we are looking at here in Mark chapter 8. Now, before you decide that you now wish you were at the beach or the lake, repetition in any field is a recognized part of learning. It is simply a well-known fact that we do not always understand something the first time we hear it, maybe not even the fifth time we hear it. Certainly that is true of the Bible. You know that you can read the Bible all of your life and yet still learn something new every time you pick it up. We also acknowledge that within the realm of Christianity, folks might not understand something the first time or the fifth time because such things are spiritually perceived. That is, the, the carnal man cannot understand the things of God, which means our, our hearts might be hardened, our ears might be stopped, our eyes might not be open. It is actually possible, though we do not like to admit it, that we can come to church and not grasp what is being taught. We do not understand always what the Scripture is saying. And we've certainly seen that with the disciples. I mean, these are the men who are the closest to Jesus. We're still in the first half of His ministry, and yet they've been with Him now for at least a year, probably closer to a year and a half, and over and over again we see that those closest to Him simply do not understand Him. They misunderstand what He teaches. They do not grasp who He is. In fact, we even saw that with His family. Now, when we think of faith, we've just sung about it. When we think of faith, we think of faith in a static sense. That is, you either have it or you don't. But the truth of the matter is, faith rises and falls. It grows and it declines. It is anything but static. 
We, in all likelihood, have people here today all along the continuum of faith. There might be some here this morning who are opposed to any kind of Christian faith whatsoever. You're here because someone invited you or you're trying to please someone rather than have an argument. You've come along, but the truth of the matter is you have no desire for faith and you are adamantly opposed to it. Perhaps we have others here this morning who would not say they are opposed to faith, but they are dull toward it. Their hearts are hardened, and you do not understand what faith is all about. And then there are others who are new to faith. Their faith is budding. Maybe it's not where it needs to be, but it is starting. You can, you can feel it springing up within you. And then, of course, we have some who have had great faith for many years, and all along that continuum. The fact of the matter is, once we have faith, it does rise and fall. We do have great moments of solid faith, and then we have other times where we wonder where our faith has gone at all. So today I want to talk to you about the evolution of faith. We're actually not going to finish this because we'll have to wait till next week for that, because in Mark chapter 8, in what we will look at next week, we come to the pivotal point in the book, the point where everything changes, the point where Jesus begins to leave Galilee and head toward Jerusalem where he knows what awaits him, the point at which Jesus begins to talk about his death and resurrection. And it is after Peter's great declaration. Next week, we will hear Jesus ask, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And we will hear Peter respond, you are the Son of of God, a high water mark in the life of Peter. But we're not there yet. Because before we get to that aspect of faith, and even that's not complete faith, but before we get there, we've got some other things to look at in this evolution of faith. So let's start in Mark chapter 8. We'll look at the first 10 verses to begin with, where we will see the dullness of the disciples. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, And they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And so we start this evolution of faith, this progress toward where we will wind up next week with that great proclamation, but we're not there yet, so we start with the dullness of the disciples, something that we've seen throughout this early part of Jesus' ministry. In fact, last week we actually met a Gentile woman whose people were enemies of Israel. She was a Syrophoenician. And we saw that she had more faith than Jesus' disciples at this point in his ministry. And we've seen the same thing with his family, a dullness, a lack of understanding about what he is doing and who he is. 
Though the text doesn't directly tell us, in all likelihood, we are still in the Decapolis. That is, that region of ten cities that are largely Gentile, having been liberated by the Romans from Jewish control. Meaning that this crowd that comes to Jesus is in all likelihood largely a Gentile crowd, though certainly there will be some Jews likely present. They have been there for three days, and by now their supplies are running out, which is going to lead to another miraculous feeding. Now, there are so many similarities between this story and the one we looked at in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, that there are actually some scholars that conclude that these are one and the same event. That is, there was only one miraculous feeding, and Mark simply tells it in two different places with some variation of details. And the reason they think that is because of the disciples' response in verse 4. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And the thinking goes that the disciples could not possibly have forgotten about what Jesus already did in the feeding of the 5,000. And so in this question, they think it tells us that there is only one feeding. But seemingly forgetting about the miraculous is not the only issue here. Just because they make this statement does not mean that they don't remember Their question doesn't have to mean that they forgot. After all, there was no doubt plenty of times where Jesus did not feed the crowd. We have to remember that. that There were crowds around him all of the time, and his ministry was not about the miraculous per se. That was not his top priority. So there were plenty of times where there were large crowds that he did not feed. And also, this might be a humble way for the disciples to not presume upon Jesus. That is not to demand, in essence, that he perform another miracle. There are certainly enough differences in the two miracles that lead me and many others to conclude that these are indeed separate, though similar instances, chief of which is what Jesus says in verses 19 and 20, verses we'll get to in a moment, where he makes reference to both the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. So I trust you will agree with me that these are separate, though similar events, and that there is a reason in the shortest gospel of the four that Mark records both stories. So Jesus looks down on the crowd of 4,000. This time the word is not gender specific, meaning that when we looked at the 5,000, it was a term specific for men. And so we concluded that that was probably fifteen to 20,000 people that he fed. But this is a term that means more like people. And so the total number here might be 4,000. And he looks out with compassion, a word that means he was deeply moved within. They had stayed with him even after running out of food, no doubt because they wanted to continue to hear his teaching and to continue to be near him. I do believe this is a great example of where the spiritual becomes a higher priority than the physical. That is, they cared more about hearing him than they cared about physical food. You will remember way back in the early part of Mark's gospel, Jesus has that encounter with the devil in the wilderness where he is tempted, and in one of his answers to the devil, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I think what we see here is an example of the crowd doing just that. And by the way, this is one of the few instances where Mark is positive about the crowd. Most of the time, the crowd has been a hindrance to Jesus' ministry, but here they seem to prioritize the spiritual over the physical. It's more common in our day to do the opposite. 
In fact, some of you act like you are wasting away if I happen to go to 12.05 and you're a few minutes late to lunch. I won't name any names. But here they are prioritizing the spiritual. Jesus was concerned that if he simply sends them away, they might not have the strength nor the energy to make it home. They are on the side of the Jordan that is geographically more rugged. There are fewer cities and villages on this side of the Jordan to which they could go in order to get food. And the text very clearly states that some of them had come from great distances. And so he did not want to send them away without adequate food and water. Those of you who hike occasionally know how important it is to bring along the proper supplies. In fact, you probably bring along some extra supplies just in case something happens because you do not want to get caught on a trail without food and water because you will lose your strength and may be finding yourself in a life-threatening situation very quickly. The actual miracle here itself is rather identical to the previous one with the exception of the numbers involved, and so I won't go over all of those details again. The ending is also very similar. Verse 8 says, they all ate and were satisfied. That word satisfied is actually the same word that's translated feed in verse 4. So we could translate it in verse 4. The disciples ask, how can we satisfy these people in this rugged area? And in verse 8, Jesus gives the answer, he has satisfied them with the miracle of bread. And that is the, still the answer today. Not for physical bread, but for all of life. Only Jesus can provide what we truly need, and only Jesus can satisfy our deepest longings, and therefore looking to anyone else or anywhere else will always prove futile. I said earlier that there is a reason, there has to be a reason why Mark would record both of these stories in the shortest of the Gospels, and I think we find the reason in the audiences. Most believe that this initial story in chapter 6 of the feeding of the 5,000, which was largely a Jewish crowd, is done there to show that God in Christ is providing for His chosen people. But now here in this story that is largely made up of Gentiles, it is repeated so that we see God in Christ is also here to satisfy and supply to the Gentiles. Or since, as we've acknowledged, in all likelihood, there are both Gentiles and some Jews here, this might be a picture of the church where all are invited to come, no matter the distinctions. All are invited to come and be satisfied by Christ. The Gentiles may have been ostracized by the Jews, but they are not ostracized by God. You might find yourself ostracized at work or at school, or maybe even at home, but you do not find yourself ostracized by God. He invites all to come and find themselves satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. So we begin this evolution of faith with the dullness of the disciples, an aspect that we'll actually see again in just a few moments. But from the dullness of the disciples, we move to the demand of the Pharisees. Verse 11, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. 
If it wasn't bad enough that the hearts of the disciples were hard so that their understanding was dull, we now have these religious leaders, that's what the Pharisees are, and they come to Jesus and demand a sign. And the reason this is part of the evolution of faith is because in all actuality, they're trying to bypass faith altogether. They don't want to have faith. They want a sign that will tell them without any doubt that Jesus is, in fact, sent from God, leaving no necessary part to faith. So the Pharisees now return, telling us that we are likely back in Jewish territory now, though we do not know anything about this district of Dalmanutha. That's one of the regions in the Bible that we've simply never been able to find. But they do not come like the crowds to listen and learn from Jesus. They come to argue and to test Him. And this testing is not the objective analysis in order to determine the merits of who Jesus is or what He is doing. This testing is the same word that is used in the first chapter for tempting of the devil of Jesus in the wilderness. So they are coming to entrap Him, to put an obstacle or stumbling block before him in order that they might discredit him before the people. Now, our first reaction is to their demand of a sign, where have you been? I mean, you have heard of what Jesus has done. You've probably even been a witness to some of the miracles that Jesus has performed. But what we need to understand is that in the New Testament, there is a difference between a sign and a miracle. The Pharisees were not asking for a miracle. They were asking for a sign from heaven, that is from God, that would prove without any doubt that this man Jesus was in fact sent from God. They've seen the miracles and they've already concluded that the, mir the miraculous power that Jesus has is demonic in, in authority or in nature. So they want something from heaven, from God himself. If Jesus is going to insist that he's been sent from God, if Jesus is going to continue to teach in the authority and in the name of God, and if Jesus is going to continue to say that he is in fact God, they are now demanding that God speak and authorize this man on his behalf. And so Jesus sighs once again, something again we saw last week. Although last week we said that the sigh was a, sign of, a sigh of sorrow. He was sorrowful over what sin had done to people. That is not the case here. This is a sigh of exasperation or dismay at their hardened hearts and unbelief or their lack of faith. And so he says a sign is not going to be given because a sign will not lead them to faith. As I've said before, their hearts and their minds are made up and signs are not the prelude to saving faith. Paul will later write to the church in Corinth, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And he acknowledges that such preaching is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but it is the power and the wisdom of God to those who are being saved. Now we still have plenty in our day who demand more. If God will do this, and you'll have to fill in the blank in your own life, but if God will do this, then I will believe. If God will answer this prayer, or God will give me this, then I will believe. Or so they say. But the truth is that those who demand a sign will never be satisfied by signs. You remember the story where there is a man who has gone to torment 
And he now understands, of course, that torment is real. And so he is calling out to Jesus, and he says, send someone to tell my brothers that this place is real, because if, if, if someone goes and tells them, they will believe. And Jesus says they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus says if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe the one returns from the dead, a prefiguring of what he himself was going to do. Did the Pharisees come to faith when they saw the ultimate sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Of course not, because signs do not produce faith. We are to believe the good news. That's how this gospel began. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, and that takes faith, something these Pharisees did not have. So we've seen the dullness of the disciples. We've seen the demand from the Pharisees. And now in verses 14 and following, we return to the disciples where we are going to find they are actually distracted in His presence. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And He cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So again, we're back in the boat with the disciples and Jesus, and we find that they are distracted in his very presence. Jesus leaves the Pharisees after this brief encounter, perhaps not just physically, though clearly he does that, but perhaps spiritually, symbolically leaving them behind. And so he gets in a boat again with his disciples, and the question of bread comes up yet again. They had forgotten to bring along bread for this trip, leaving us to wonder what in the world happened to the seven baskets full of bread that were left over. Why didn't anybody have the foresight to bring one of those baskets? Perhaps because they think like I think, and that is they don't like leftovers. And so they left those behind, and now they wanted something new. And Jesus, knowing, of course, that they were discussing this issue, gives them a warning in verse 15. Watch out, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. A warning which they took to mean Jesus was cautioning them against uh, their arguing over lack of bread. So they do what we still do. That is, they began to discuss further and to point fingers, trying to determine who was at fault in this forgetting of bread. Whose responsibility was it to bring dinner onto the boat? But that is not what Jesus is talking about. But what is Jesus talking about? I mean, he doesn't expand upon this statement. He never clarifies it. He never explains it. So what is he talking about as they discuss bread and he talks about leaven? Well, leaven, of course, is yeast. And you cooks know that a little yeast can affect a larger batch of dough. In cooking terms, it is what causes the bread or the dough to rise. But in the Bible, most times, yeast or leaven is not a positive term. It is used instead to speak of corruption or unholiness 
or danger. Matthew tells us concerning the Pharisees, it was a warning about their teaching, a teaching that was false and therefore would not result in faith. Luke tells us in his gospel that it is about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But in our context, it's not just the Pharisees, it is also Herod, two people or groups who frankly did not have a lot in common, other than the fact that both the Pharisees and Herod were united in their opposition to Jesus as a result of their unbelief, which is strangely exactly what Jesus is encountering in the boat with his disciples. They are on the verge of acting just like the Pharisees or acting just like Herod in their unbelief. So I think Jesus is warning them here about unbelief or even the demand for signs rather than expressing faith. And while he is talking about ultimate matters of spirituality and faith, they are debating who forgot the bread. That's why I call this distractions in his presence. If you've ever been diagnosed with cancer or some other serious illness, you know that it changes your perspective for a period of time. You don't, you don't think about what you used to think about. You immediately begin to think differently. In the days following your diagnosis, you are not likely to have a serious conversation over what you think the new offensive coordinator is going to do at the University of Tennessee. Nor do you have heated debates about the ending of Game of Thrones. Because suddenly those things are not all that important because you've been given news that trumps all of that and now you are thinking about different matters. I remember a few years ago we were in Washington, D.C. We were going to the Southern Baptist Convention in Baltimore, but we had gone a few days early and we were in Washington, D.C. And one of the things we did was we went to the Holocaust Museum. We spent several hours in the Holocaust Museum, a very emotional uh, time. And about the time I was exiting after this, uh, uh, this tour... I got a phone call from a friend of mine, and that friend of mine began immediately to talk about college football and the prospects for our respective teams come that particular fall. And when he finally gave me a chance to say something with a, with a choked up voice, I remember saying to him, listen, man, I have just finished walking through the Holocaust Museum, and frankly, I'm not in the mood to talk about college football. And because he had been there himself, he knew exactly what I was talking about. Because you don't talk about trivial matters when there's greater issues to be dealt with. And here we find Jesus in the boat talking about ultimate matters of faith and spirituality. And these men are concerned with whose fault it was that nobody brought bread. They were distracted in the very presence of Jesus as he's giving them a very serious warning about their lack of faith. They're talking about trivial issues. How easy it is for us to get distracted in our faith as well. Could it not be accurately said of many professing believers that they are distracted from the things of God by the things of the world? The truth of the matter is a large part of my job is to draw your attention back each and every week to ultimate realities. Because we live in a world that takes us away from all of that. With all of the busyness and all the things we have to do, it is in large measure my job on Sunday mornings to open up the Word of God and remind you that what you've gone through Monday through Saturday is not all there is. That there is something greater and something beyond, and our thoughts and minds need to go there more often than they do. In response, Jesus rattles off a series of questions 
all dealing with the truth that the disciples are both dull and distracted in their faith. They do not understand. They do not see. They do not hear. All of that, of course, from a spiritual perspective. And they also don't remember. Verse 18, and do you not remember? They should have known what Christ had done in the past in both of these miracles of the feeding, and he reminds them of that. They should have remembered that and therefore understood that with him in their midst, they had everything they need, but they did not remember. There is a saying I'm sure you are familiar with that says those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. It's one of the reasons we have days like Memorial Day, a day to pause and reflect upon the past. Memorial Day is not the start of summer, and I am saddened that that's what it's become. Memorial Day is not the first weekend where we can go to the lake because we have an extra day off. Memorial Day is not about traveling and cooking out, though of course we do those things. Memorial Day is a time for us to remember those who died in combat, paying the ultimate price for our freedom. And in remembering that, what they gave to us and our country, we then hopefully will be grateful for our freedom and future generations will be willing to fight if necessary for that freedom to remain. I was visiting one of our senior adult couples this week And they had been watching television. I don't remember the exact details of of what they had seen or or what what had gone on, but they began to tell me about a student. I don't know the age of the student. I don't even know if it was a personal encounter or it was from television. I just don't remember the details. But, But they began to tell me about a student who was told the story of Pearl Harbor and didn't know what it was. And the student's response to being told what Pearl Harbor was about was this. He said, I just thought that was a movie. And this couple was grieved and saddened and shocked by the fact that a major event that they had lived through, they're in their early 90s, so they were alive when it happened, had now been forgotten by this student who just thought it was a movie. And they were shocked that the remembrance was no longer there. Jesus is saddened by those who are closest to him who cannot put the pieces together. They've watched him miraculously feed. They've seen him satisfy large crowds of people with plenty left over, and yet here they sit in the boat with him arguing about who forgot the bread. He wasn't mad that they didn't have anything to eat. He was frustrated that they didn't know who was with him and that they didn't understand that if they have Jesus, they have everything they needed. And I wonder if we understand that. Are we at a place in our faith where we can genuinely say, I am satisfied with Jesus? If I have nothing else, if He gives me nothing else, I am satisfied with Jesus. Well, we need to move on to our last section and finally see some progress, a display of progress in faith. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. 
His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. In this last section, we finally see a display of progress. It it is a story of yet another miracle, though this one is unique. It is the only miracle in the ministry of Jesus that proceeds in stages. And that is not because, as some people mistakenly conclude, that Jesus was somehow unsuccessful at first. I mean, we have seen Jesus heal with just a word. We have seen Jesus heal with just a touch. We have seen Jesus perform miracles from a distance. So this is not a matter of Jesus tries it once and it doesn't actually work totally and therefore he has to do it all over again. This miracle is intentionally done in stages because it is a picture of the stages of faith, specifically in the lives of his disciples. And so they're back at Bethsaida, a more familiar territory here. They are on the shores of the Sea of Galilee once again, and people bring a blind man to Jesus and beg him to touch him like he's touched others. There are actually eight different Greek words in these verses for the nine instances of seeing. And I say that for my own benefit, just because I find that fascinating. So whether you find it fascinating or not, that one was for me. Eight different words about seeing here, telling us that, that this is significant, this is important. We see Jesus touching the man, he uses spit again. We saw all of that last Sunday with the deaf man. And we see the personal nature once again in this encounter because Jesus takes him away from the crowd, actually takes him out of the village, showing us that Jesus is concerned with the individual, not just a man who is part of the masses. And based on his initial response, we conclude that he was probably not born blind. In other words, he had some conception of what he was supposed to see. I see people, but they look like trees, So he's probably seen in the past, but for some time he has not been able to. And the uniqueness of this miracle is in the fact that it is in two stages. Though again, Jesus could have done this instantly. At first, the man only sees partially. He has blurry vision, much like I have when I take my contacts out. I probably couldn't even identify trees that look like they're walking. But then after the second touch, he now sees completely or clearly. And so there has to be some reason why this particular miracle is done in two stages. And the answer lies in the fact that this is not primarily about a blind man who can now see. I mean, last week we talked about a deaf man who can now hear, and this week another blind man who can now see. But there is more here than just physical healing of the ears or the eyes. Both of these point to spiritual truths. The disciples were struggling with their hearing. They did not understand what Jesus was talking nor about nor what he was doing. The disciples are struggling with their seeing. That is, they do not grasp who Jesus is. And their ears and their eyes are finally beginning to open. They are finally making that progression which will result next week in Peter saying, you are the son of God. And again, that's not that's not ultimate faith. We're going to still see Peter and the others have their ups and downs. We will never have ultimate faith until we see him with our sight. So their faith is not complete, but it is certainly making progress. But the question is not does where not is the question is not about where their faith stands. The question is about ours. 
What about your faith this morning? Is it dull like the disciples? You just can't seem to grasp the things of God and you can't seem to understand who Jesus is. Maybe it's demanding like the Pharisees. If God will do this, then I will believe. If you find yourself in either one of those categories, I want to invite you this morning to respond and come to Jesus for a miracle. And that miracle is the miracle of hearing and seeing, not physically but spiritually. Because it is only God in Christ who can open your ears so that you understand. It is only God in Christ who can open your eyes so that you can see. Because every single salvation is a miracle from God. It is not just a decision that we make to follow Jesus. It is a miracle of God whereby he opens our eyes, he opens our ears, he changes our hearts. And because of that, we respond in faith. So if you find yourself in one of those first two categories, I'm inviting you to experience a miracle. Well, perhaps you know that you are saved, but you would have to admit that your faith has been distracted. It is not the priority that it once was, and you are not finding your satisfaction in Christ. If you find yourself in that category, I invite you to respond today in repentance acknowledging to Christ that He has not been the priority that He should be in your life, and asking Him to give you a change in direction so that your priority is your relationship with Him, and He becomes once again your first love. I hope many of us find ourselves in the last category we mentioned, that is, we're making progress in our faith. That doesn't mean that we can sit back and relax. That doesn't mean that that we don't have anything else to do or we should not plead with God to open our eyes still more. But I hope you can look back over your life and see that you have more faith today than you did this time last year or more faith today than you did a decade ago. And wherever you are on that continuum, I want to encourage you to pray and ask what some of the disciples asked. Lord, Lord, I do believe. I have faith, but help me with my unbelief. Help me to grow in my faith because I want to be stronger tomorrow than I am today. Lord, increase our faith. Let's pray.